On Before the Bestseller, we talk with our favorite authors about the books they wrote and the stories behind how those books made it big. I'm your host, Alex Straffy, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Dr. Yubel is today's guest, and she is today's guest because of the fact that she has sold thousands and thousands of copies of her book, Lose Weight, How to Lose Weight for the Last Time, and also because of the fact that it is a very timely uh, topic for me. It's never something I've struggled with, and yet I have found myself for the first time sitting behind a desk being a little bit less... Uh, move, uh, moving a whole lot less. And so it is actually something that I'm very excited to learn more about the topic itself. And then next time, Dr. Yubel has been kind enough to come back on to talk to us about the marketing and how she sold thousands and thousands of copies of it. To give you some background on Dr. Yubel, she is a master, uh, master certified life, life and weight loss coach who struggled with her own weight for decades before finding a permanent solution. In 2016, she founded Weight Loss for Busy Physicians, which offers a weight loss program that has helped over a thousand physicians. She's a graduate of John Hopkins University, University of Michigan, and lives in Wisconsin with her three children, husband and West Highland Terrier. And so it is my pleasure to welcome on Dr. Ubel. Dr. Katrina Ubel, it is such a pleasure to have you on here. I really appreciate you taking the time, not just because you get to teach us some amazing book marketing, but also because I have recently gained a fair bit of weight and I'm excited to chat with you about losing it. Awesome. So glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. Everyone gets this initial question when we start off is a childhood story that made you who you are today. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, okay. So when I was in fourth grade, um, up until that point, I'd lived in Southern California and with my family and my dad had apparently passed up lots of different promotions with his job that would require him to move over the years. But then finally, a promotion came along the pipeline that was a little bit too good to say no to. And so my parents pulled me and my older brother aside. And we had a family meeting. So we were talking about moving from Southern California, beautiful, sunny Southern California, to the Detroit area to Michigan. And we were going to be moving in December. And so my only question to them was, do they have snow there? They said yes. And I said, then let's go. And so we did. We moved there and uh, totally changed my life. And that's how I became a Midwesterner. That's how I got my lovely Midwestern accent that I have. Usually it's the other way around. People go from the Midwest to the coast, not the coast uh, to the Midwest. But it must have been a really good job for your dad to be willing to give that up. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Well, cool. So why have you made it a big part of your life to teach others about weight loss? Well, it's something that I struggled with myself for a really long time. I'm sure so many people can can relate how, you know, it's not like I, you know, just one day magically started overeating. It's just that I was younger and active and able to kind of, you know, absorb that, I think, um, you know, over the course of time. I also came of age during a time when, you know, the the messaging around dieting, particularly for girls and women was like extra super intense, plus the whole low fat kind of, you know, craze was happening all at that time. And, um, and so over the course of time, I started struggling with my weight, like once I was well into adulthood, college a little bit, I figured it was just kind of more like the typical, you know, like when I ate in the dorms, I gained some weight, but then I lost it again. And that was okay. 
But when I went to medical school is when I really started struggling with my weight more. And really what was happening there was, yes, I was older, but also I just had no time to do any of the things that help to moderate uh, my stress levels. Um, I wasn't able to be as active as I was before. And it started really catching up with me. So my fourth year of medical school was the first time I went to Weight Watchers and I lost some weight leading up to my wedding, which is at the uh, at, at the uh, beginning of that. And, um, and so I ended up on this journey kind of unknowingly that that was what I was embarking on. But I basically lost and gained 40 pounds at least 10 times over the following two decades. And it was something that was really, really a struggle for me, something that I felt like I was either uh, always either losing weight and and when doing that uncomfortable deprived hungry it was difficult um not something that fit very easily into my life or i was overeating and gaining the weight back and particularly when you're a doctor <laughs> as i as i am i worked as a pediatrician in general practice it you start to just kind of get a little bit flummoxed like how how can I be a doctor? And I know so much, yet I still struggle with this and I cannot figure this out. And you start, it's really easy to start thinking that there's something just wrong with you as an individual. Like clearly something's broken within me. And the other thing is, you know, nobody likes it when people are making comments about their body. Well, some people like it, I guess, if they're losing weight, but you know, generally we're just kind of like, let us just do our own thing. But as a doctor, people will come and see you, particularly a pediatrician will come and see you, you know, maybe every um, year with their child or, you know, maybe every six months for a while with their child. And so they would come and see me at different points of the gaining and the losing. And so people were noticing and I couldn't help but just feel kind of humiliated and ashamed about that. Like here I am giving you advice on how to keep your child healthy and your family healthy. And clearly I'm struggling over here. Like, can you even trust me and what I'm saying? And that was a me issue. I mean, that no one ever said that to me, but that was my concern. And so I really started thinking like, you know, maybe it's because I'm a doctor that I struggle so much because I don't have the consistent schedule. Things are all over the place. I never know one day to the next, like what's going to, you know, what my day is going to be like. So I thought, you know, maybe there's some people out there who are helping doctors lose weight. So I Googled for that. And all I could find was medical weight loss clinics. And I knew that like surgery, you know, that just, I wasn't against that. I just was like, I don't think that's what I need. And so I kind of embarked on this journey to figure it out for myself. Like this just does not actually make logical sense that this has to be so complicated and difficult and painful and (laughs) restrictive and depriving and horrible. And so I ended up finding life coaching as a modality. I didn't even really know what it was, but I tried so many other things that didn't work. I thought, yeah, I'll give it a try. Why not? And that's when I started to understand that there was actually an emotional component to weight gain and loss, and also the way that we think. And that just changed everything for me. And to help me to lose, you know, I lost 50 pounds, I've been able to keep it off for seven years now. Um, I, I had never had that experience ever before. And I thought, you know, I think there might be some other doctors out there who might want some help with this. And so that's when I made the transition away from practicing as a pediatrician and helping people with weight. And you weren't the only one who, you know, the doctor who probably felt guilty about that. Because I know you write in your forward that 63% of physicians are overweight, which I laughed at because how can someone who is supposed to be taking care of someone's health 
kind of like, you know, taking advice from, you know, financial advice from the uncle who's broke, right? That's, that's <laughs> a little like, bit. It's, it you know, what it really is, is, is the, the standard conventional advice is just missing a significant component. And the doctors who are struggling with it themselves are also missing that component. They are also unaware. So, you know, while I want to help doctors for sure, my bigger vision now with this company and what I do in coaching is to help change the way the whole medical community approaches weight loss, because there is a big gap. Like we're not saying that the medications shouldn't be used. We're not saying that it's more virtuous or better if you lose it through, you know, diet and exercise or like things like that. We're just saying that like those things can be helpful, but just look around still so many people struggle. There's something else to it. If you're at least aware that that thing exists, you can maybe apply it to yourself. Or if you don't want to apply it to yourself as a doctor, you could at least share that information with the patients you take care of. Yeah. And my own journey has taken me from also being that very active young person who could easily, I could eat, you know, I, people always joked about me as that I could eat anything and, you know, it would never be an issue. And I remember always kind of hearing, from my parents or other people, oh, you know, it'll catch up with you one day. And I think I finally hit that age where your metabolism starts to slow down. And I have a feeling that this is that age that a lot of people start to encounter these problems for the first time where they're less active, they're sitting behind a desk all day. And the part that you write about it is that it's so much more mental. And, you know, I've had periods where, you know, especially back when I used to be very active in high school sports and all that, where you know, I, I really didn't, you know, I didn't drink soda. I was adverse to sugar. I would, you know, I didn't feel the need to eat sugar. I, I preferred healthy foods in my body. And in the book, you write a lot about the dopamine cycle and and mm-hmm. how that really is a big, a uh, big part of it. And how, you know, someone can look at a, at a brownie, you know, after going through a, a mental change and no longer, you know, think, oh, look at that gooey brown brownie. You know, I really want that. It looks delicious. So how does that change happen? I know, you know, obviously mm-hmm. for you, it's, 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 you know, yeah, walk us through the mental conversation you have to have with yourself for things to change. Yeah. So a big part of what most people aren't aware of, or even like really understand is that the desire that we have, particularly for certain foods that are kind of our, you know, whatever you want to call them, your trigger foods, like the ones that you can't resist. Like if, if that comes into your awareness, like you're going to be eating it we think that that's just sort of happening to us. Like, you know, using your brownie, like don't, if there's a brownie around, like I'm going to end up having to eat it. Like we think that that's just true. And we're just like notifying those around us. Like that's how it is. What we don't realize is that the desire we have for food is created by the way that we think about it. So not to take away that, yes, when you eat that, that tastes good to you. Whereas maybe someone who doesn't like chocolate is not that interested in a brownie. Sure. But a big part of the reason why it seems so irresistible, so difficult to manage, it feels so bad to not eat it when you're trying not to eat things like that is because of the desire that we create by the way that we think about it. So, and it can be just as simple as thoughts like, "Mm, that would be really good. Ooh, I like eating things like that. Not that you can't tell yourself the truth, which is yes, you like to eat that, but more just recognizing that letting your brain kind of like fondle the food with its thinking creates more desire for you, like more of an urge to eat it, a stronger urge. I call that over desire. It's, you know, kind of an inappropriate level of desire, excess desire. 
And then it's really hard to not eat that food. Or if we don't eat it, we feel so sorry for ourselves. It feels like, you know, just such a, like an awful experience. And like, this is the world we live in where we can't even have this brownie that we love, you know, and, and often we end up just giving in and eating it eventually anyway, or eating something else, because that desire, that urge, if we don't know how to process that and let that move through us, it feels bad. And we just want to kind of like scratch that itch, so to speak. So what I like to teach you know, the people I work with to do is to create an appropriate amount of desire. It's not saying, ew, gross brownies. I hate brownies. They're disgusting. Some people try to do that. They try to convince themselves they don't like it. I haven't found that to be very effective. But what we can do is just recognize like, what is the another truth about this? Yes, I like what that tastes like. But another truth about this is that this brownie sitting here is, you know, a, a grouping of molecules that are edible. You know, they're digestible. Uh, they give, you know, some, some, some form of energy to human bodies. You know, it's like kind of taking away the, the romanticism around it. You know, it's just like, it's something you can chew up and swallow, just like so many other things that you can chew up and swallow. Like, it's just deciding to think about it differently. You know, um, you know a lot of people say, well, you just can't have that stuff around you. I instead say, no, we want to get to a time where you can have that all around you. And it just doesn't really matter that much. Like you'd have all the brownies, all the favorite brownies around you, and you could just as easily eat one and really enjoy the heck out of it as not have it and also be fine because it has an appropriate amount of importance in your life. You know, if you think about evolutionarily speaking for humans, like if you happen to, you know, come across like in, you know, around this time of year, maybe, maybe a little earlier, you know, it came across like an apple tree or a peach tree or some berries or something. And they were really ripe. Like you would literally gorge yourself on that because that food was scarce and winter was coming and you weren't going to be able to have more. So that's, if you understand that that's like the underpinning of what drives us to want to eat all these brownies, then you recognize, you know, what I have to do is tell myself a different story, not tell myself a story of like, Ooh, I love brownies. Brownies are my favorite thinking about it that way just makes you want to overeat. So choosing a different way of thinking about it, that's still true. That allows you to not experience so much excess desire is what can be really beneficial. So I had to do this with peanut butter because I just super love peanut butter. I eat it by the spoonful out of the container and nothing, not there's like anything wrong with peanut butter, but eating probably like a cup at a time is probably too much peanut butter for anybody, you know? And so I really had to uh, understand how am I thinking about this that makes it seem like a really good idea to go back for spoonful after spoonful after spoonful, you know, and how can I adjust that? And, and it was so cool. I remember that was the first food I did this with. It was so cool to be able to just have, you know, several jars of peanut butter in my pantry and just legitimately not care. Like if I ate it, it would be fine. Also, I don't need to eat it. It's just not a big deal. And that's how I, I describe that as having peace and freedom around food, right? You can just be around everything. It doesn't matter. You're not saying it's gross. You're not saying you can never have it. But if you're going to have it, you're going to have the best brownie, right? You're not going to eat some crummy, gross brownie. You're going to eat like your favorite brownie and you're going to really taste it. You're not going to just like, you know, plow it down and eat it really fast. Like you're going to really savor it. And enjoy the heck out of that thing. And also, if you're not going to have it for any reason, it's okay. Because you know what? 
you can eat a brownie anytime you want to. Just do yeah. you need to right now? You know, because that want, if you can eat a brownie anytime you want to, but you don't really want to, it's actually really easy to not overeat. Yeah. Uh, LVC mentioned a lot of this comes down to the thinking. And another part of the thinking is around how you think about hunger itself. Yes. And I know you tell the story about the animal crackers that you would binge on mm-hmm. at the end of the day when you're, you know, filling out clients' charts or, or patients' charts and and processing the paperwork. And for me, that's, you know, I, I, I resonated with that because I recently had a colonoscopy and I, you know, went, uh, you know, you, you, and I expected to go into it and just be starving. And this also ties back a little bit. I, I'd love to hear this two part question. I'd also love to hear kind of the science behind, cause you, you flawlessly explained the science of how your body ingests, uh, sugar as well in a way that I've never actually understood before. And it was like reading this book is like the first time I was like, oh, that's how it works. And you mentioned about the fat storage and the long-term fat storage of the sugar. And so as I was going through this uh, period of of not eating, I was amazed because I actually, after the first couple hours, really wasn't that hungry anymore. And it was almost like I could feel my body eating the, the excess fat and sugars and I also had mental clarity that I, it was weird. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect, I expected to be like tired, laying in bed. And after, you know, the, the morning of the, the procedure, I actually woke up feeling just in, obviously, you know, a little lethargic, but also very mentally clear. And, and so there's a lot going on there that, that play, ties into the science. So yeah, walk us through, first of all, you know, sort of the thinking around, okay, when you're hungry, you're not actually dying. Cause clearly when I was, you know, the beginning for a couple hours, I, I kept, my mind kept going to food and I was like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. But after like six hours of not eating, I almost felt bad that I wasn't hungrier. And so, yeah, <laughs> hungry, hungry isn't, isn't death. So walk us through that and then mm-hmm. walk us through some of the science behind how your body ingests sugar, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Well, you know, if you think about it again, from, from an evolutionary standpoint, it would not make any sense whatsoever that if a human being couldn't eat for even a day or a couple of days that they would feel so lethargic that they couldn't move because you're not going to find food that way. (laughs) You know, like you would need to have clear, sharp thinking so that you can go kill an animal or go remember other places where you can forage for food or, or things like that. So what you've just described is really what happens for a lot of people if they're open to having that that experience. Sometimes if we've been eating a lot of sugar, it takes a little time for the body to kind of um, sort of willingly start doing that a little bit more, but usually not that long, like a week, maybe a little longer. Um, so really what happens is when we're eating easily digestible sources of sugar on a regular basis, it kind of makes our bodies lazy in the sense that, um, you know, you have extra fat stores on your body, which are there for a rainy day or a famine, right? So like, you know, just you have those on board to help you in the future, which is great. And, and, you know, for the majority of human existence, starvation was a huge, it was probably the highest cause of death. So like very, very important, right? Uh, That we have those, but what happens for us now where food is very, very, very plentiful and sugar is added to about 70% of foods that are available on a grocery store shelf is that every time we eat, we are being bombarded with easy, easily digestible forms of, um, of sugar. So I'm not talking about like your brown rice here, or your like, you know, um, whole fruit or, you know, uh, things like that. I'm talking about like actual sugar that's added to so many things. 
And um, so when we eat that, our bodies can absorb that super quickly. It makes our blood sugar levels go up just because it's absorbed. And then the pancreas has to um, secrete insulin kind of in lockstep with that, because it's really not good for us to have a whole bunch of free sugar flowing around our bloodstream. That's not, not good for us. That's, you know, when people are diabetic, that's what's going on for them. So the pancreas right away responds secretes insulin because insulin is kind of like the the key in uh, the door in the lock of the door of each cell in our bodies. So glucose cannot be utilized by our cells unless insulin helps it get inside the cell. And, um, and what makes us actually really tired is when insulin levels go, go high. So like that kind of, you know, you eat a lot of sugar and then you feel tired and everything. That's what often makes us feel that way. When our insulin levels are low, we actually often have much sharper mental acuity, which is what you described after not eating. Because when you're not eating, you you do actually have a little bit of insulin, but not very much, like very low levels when you're not eating. So, so, you know, the, the blood sugar needs to get to the cells because your cells need energy, but, uh, you know, maybe after a meal, like 5% of what you've ingested is being used by the cells right then. So it needs to be stored. So then it goes to the liver and is packaged up there to be, um, to be held onto. And that can, you know, give you a couple hours worth of energy. That's what's happening in between meals. Like, how are you getting that glucose? Like it's being converted into a storage form in the liver and then reconverted back out. Um, for the cells to be able to use. But, you know, for most of us, when we're eating, you know, just like normal food or if we're overeating, it's still more uh, energy than even our liver can hold. So then what to do with that sugar? Well, it gets processed and changed and then stored in our fat cells. So, um, so that's how we end up with that in our fat cells. So our bodies know how to reconvert that fat into energy. I mean, that's what weight loss is. Um, but when we're eating sugar on a regular basis, it's kind of like our bodies become reluctant, you know, they're just kind of like, you know, what's actually a lot easier for me is if I just make you feel like crap and then you just go and eat something, <laughs> you know? So that's when we feel like super low energy. We start to get a headache. We feel sometimes like woozy or lightheaded. We feel hangry, you know, like the hunger hits us and we're like, I could just gnaw my arm off. Like it's, if you think about it again, like it's kind of, it would be inappropriate for the hunger to feel that uncomfortable for someone out in, you know, like hunting and foraging for their food, you know, like it wouldn't make sense for them to feel so bad. So when it's hunger is such an extreme response, that's when I know like your body is just like, Hey, you know what? Let's just burn that sugar like super quick. It's so much easier to do that. What we want to do is encourage our bodies to become uh, more of what we call like a fat burner, where it means that if, you know, when you get that hunger signal, because your body does need more nutrition, needs energy, it's, it's more like kind of like a wave lapping at your ankles, like in a very calm part of the ocean, you know, it's just like a little suggestion. It's a little nudge, like, Hey, we could use some food. And if you don't eat, then maybe after 10, 15 minutes of that sensation, it goes away and your body happily just converts the fat on your body into that energy that your cells need. And, um, and, it, you know, conversely, when we were talking about being a sugar burner, I think of that as like a huge wave coming in, like crashing over your head, right? It feels like you're being pummeled, like it is a problem that needs to be solved. Whereas when you're more in that fat burning kind of a, um, you know, kind of physiology, it it just feels a lot more comfortable. And so that's really what it comes down to. You know, we just, <laughs> we just have to understand how our bodies work. And I know people are like, oh, but sugar and sugar tastes good. And it's not to say that you can't ever have that. It's just, are you consuming it 
throughout the day regularly, like most people are. Yeah. It's a lot easier to, from what I'm hearing, it comes down to the philosophy of it's a lot easier to fight your enemy if you know, if you know their name. Right. And it's, yeah, if you, if you know, just understand, yeah, if you just understand your physiology, you're like, oh, right, <laughs> right on time. I feel exactly as I should feel when right. I consume things this way. And this is, you know, a bit of a simplistic description that I've given, but I think it's also important to recognize that each of us is different. And I think one of the big problems with the whole weight loss industry is that we get these experts who come in kind of saying like, Hey, I know how to solve this problem better than you do, because obviously you're the one who got yourself into this problem, into this conundrum. So I know the solution. You can't be trusted person who struggles with your weight. Um, so here you go. Here's what you're going to be doing. And usually it's going to be one plan for everybody, or, you know, maybe there'll be like a couple, you know, they'll stratify you into a group, maybe a couple groups and like, here's your plan for that. But you know, ultimately things like that tend to only work long-term for a very small subsection of people. And the, the, I mean, my hypothesis and just from being that person, like having tried so many things for so many years is like, no one can possibly know what it's like to be me in my body. Like no one can tell me what it feels like inside my body when I eat a certain food. Like, I can't know Alex, what it feels like for you to eat a food. Like I can only know what it feels like for me. So when we take back that power to go, you know what, actually, I am the expert in me. And yes, I did contribute to creating this problem in the ways that I did. That doesn't mean that I don't know anything or can't contribute or can't figure this out with some guidance. Like taking back that expert responsibility, you know, rather than trying to find the expert who's going to solve the problem for us, instead going, no, wait, I'm actually the expert. And I'm going to gather some information and get some guidance from people who know a lot of things, but I'm still just going to figure out what works best for me. People who approach it that way tend to have the, a much higher chance of creating a permanent weight loss result for themselves because obviously our bodies change or like you go through an injury or an illness or you have to take a different medication or just your body changes because you're getting older or whatever. Like no one's going to know the right thing to do except you, if you're willing to work with yourself and your body, get really, really curious and experiment. A lot of people are like, well, I want to be told what's going to work. And I just want to do that. And I want to get the A plus immediately. <laughs> like, I don't want to try some things that may not work to figure out what's going to work. But usually that, you know, that that's part of the process. I don't know how to skip that part. I have hundreds. I literally have a list of uh, another 15 questions I want to ask you, but we are already coming up on time. So uh, for anyone else who is interested uh, the book is How to Lose Weight for the Last Time by Dr. Katrina Ubell. Uh, check it out. And next time, uh, Dr. Ubell has been kind enough to also, for those of you that are also interested in the book marketing side of things, how she's marketed her book uh, to close to 500 reviews, thousands and thousands of copies sold. Uh, we're going to chat about that next time. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Ubell. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thank you for listening. I know there's many other things you could have been doing during this time, and I hope you found this episode incredibly useful for you and your journey. And if you did, or if you have any feedback, I would love to hear that in a review on Apple. That would be fantastic or anywhere else that you are listening to this show. So thank you. And if you're the type of listener that is also an author or looking to be an author soon, Feel free to email me at alex at advancedamazonads.com. That's alex at advancedamazonads.com. And I'll add you to our weekly newsletter where I send out all of the best marketing tips I've ever heard from authors that I've had on this show and many of the authors that we work with. So I look forward to hearing from you if that's something you'd find useful. And 
Either way, I look forward to having you back for our next episode. 